Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, Amanda, thank you for joining the show all the way from Australia. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Famous for the cricket teams, rugby teams. <laughs> I don't know if you're famous for soccer. It's a sport. It's a sport. It's a, you're famous for sports. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yep. you're in Australia at the moment, right? And you've been doing some interesting work around Netflix and streaming video and so on. I suppose the question I've got to ask you, and it may be a bit unfair, but I'm going to ask you anyway, is given when you've done your work and given what's happening in the tech sector today, has anything changed in your initial hypotheses? Well, I have to say that I, I did not expect uh, the most recent earnings call from Netflix, as, as I don't think many people did. I don't think anyone expected it. it shocked <laughs> so, everyone. Yeah. That said, you know, my approach is is not to wildly speculate about the future, but to look at kind of business fundamentals and pieces of the business and and look to them to understand what next steps are. And so I, at this point, because when we're recording this, Netflix hasn't actually told us anything about these ads it's going to be adding to the service, right? I, you know, I, I'm not going to speculate as to what that's going to look like, because I think it could look a lot of different ways. Um, Part of me continues to wonder whether maybe they'll walk it back. Um, But I I think, I think the book is about, or the research that I've been working on really over the last five years has been aimed at trying to understand subscriber funded media. So we have a long history of television and movies and, and other forms of media that were supported to, to, to be profitable in an ad funded market. And what I understood was that the business of trying to get people to pay monthly is quite different than the business of trying to attract attention that can then be sold to advertisers. And so in, in that sense, the pieces of what I've been working on that are about subscriber funding remain solid. Uh, I think what we don't know is how the extent to which a subscriber funded only sector is going to continue to persist. Um, because in, in truth, sort of the a lot of the the thinking that's in this book that's making very distinctive arguments about how these the business of subscriber funding and ad funding are quite different, even if video yeah. is being supplied. Um, that's the part that le- left me most surprised about that Netflix announcement, because in my mind, adding a and depending on how they do it, um, but you know any kind of traditional ad option there uh, really cuts undercuts what has been the opportunity uh, an unprecedented opportunity of their business. So, so we'll see. Okay. I like that answer. I'm going to unpack a few things for the audience so that they can follow along. Okay. So I'm going to paraphrase what you said for the audience and let me know if I'm capturing this correctly. 
what you want to discuss and the work you've done is around understanding the economics and business fundamentals of a subscription-based model versus an advertising-based model. And what you're saying, and I agree with, is that the subscription-based model makes sense. There are big advantages there. For a long time, Netflix was the poster child for a subscription-based model. It has hit some rough winds. It may not be the poster child. It may be another company, but the subscription-based model is still sound and has some advantages. Is that a good way to paraphrase it? Yeah, I, I would say maybe not advantages as much as just differences, right? So there are things that subscriber funding is able to do that are different. Uh, the strategies behind the kind of content likely to be produced and, and what the aims of the services are, are different. Um, so Let's unpack that because you made a comment that you were surprised they would go into advertising because it's a different ballgame. So what are the differences and why do you think that may create some problems for Netflix? Where this all started for me um, was I, I was a television. I was studying the U.S. television industry and um, even pre-streaming the way that digitization and, and the arrival of the Internet and other things digital was changing the business. And what got me interested was the realization that you know, sort of if you can think back um, in the 1990s mm -hmm. and before that, the reputation of television in the United States was not great, um, right? It, it, yes, was, uh, it was it was it was it was it, the it, it rise may have of cable. made a lot of money globally. Yeah, right. It made a lot of money globally, but as a creative form, it was largely derided anyway. Yeah. And, and what was exciting to me about the arrival or enhancement of subscriber funded services, because we did have HBO um, in the early 2000s yeah. doing a lot of the same thing, was that a subscriber funded business model made it possible for different kind of creative to be commercially viable. Um, it, it, it made it so that the priority didn't have to always be trying to get the most mass audience, because yeah. when you're always trying to get the most mass audience, it, it narrows the stories that can be told. Um, and so that's that's the origin of, of this thinking. And so one of, I've imagined that I've been doing this work in order to, to then eventually, which is sort of where I am now, look at the kind of content being created for the subscriber funded services and explore the ways in which it is different, um, that it wouldn't be created for an ad funded system. And so that's where my uh, hesitancy about the wisdom of, of Netflix pivoting to ads appears. Because if, if the game is now about trying to have the most viewers um, or content that the most people are going to watch, that's very different than trying to develop content that really resonates with people, that provides deep satisfaction, it, because that deep satisfaction is the differentiator that leads people to be willing to pay. Okay, I like that. I'm going to unpack that again. Uh -huh. So what you're saying is that when Netflix was funded by subscribers, individual consumers, they had to please the taste of consumers. But if you now shift to ad-funded model, and we don't know what that's going to look like, but then they'd be pleasing the taste of companies like Procter & Gamble, Chevrolet, General Motors, the advertisers, and the kind of content you make that pleases these different audiences would be different. Is that a good way to paraphrase that? Um, somewhat. I think it's, 
if we look at, and you can see it in the, the way we continue to report about even the streaming industries, right? It's all about how many, right? Yes. Um, and the assumption is that, you know, Squid Game is more important than a title that's not in the top 10, but that is the favorite show of, um, let's say, 18 to 25-year-old young women around the world. Okay. Right. Like that show might not appear on, you know, that's not necessarily a thing critics are going to be talking about and the size of its audience isn't going to be massive. Um, but access to, let's say, that title might be the thing that keeps those subscribers paying each month. Right. That's the thing, uh, yeah, they, whether sense. it's a, a kind of movie like uh, Netflix has done a lot of romantic comedies. Um, yes. Romantic comedies used to be a huge part of the box office and basically have disappeared. Um, the business model of subscriber funding, um, both because they're incentivized to provide something that's different because people are going to pay yes. and because they can del deliver on demand, which means they can service lots of different people at the same time with different content. And both of those are really good reasons for why the content on a streaming service, a subscriber funded one, should look different than what we see either at the box office where we're trying to get the most butts and seats or on a linear broadcast where the sole measure is how many eyeballs are watching that show because those eyeballs will then watch the commercial. That makes sense. So what you're saying is that Netflix could have a highly fragmented audience base and it was profitable for them. But with the ad-based model, you don't really serve those small fragments of the customer base. And what you're saying there is that that kind of creativity will be missing? So that's where I'm uncertain about how Netflix is going to roll out commercials or advertising. And, yes. and, and the reason that matters is because of their, I assume they will have the ability to serve different ads in different content. We and so I can imagine yes. uh, that they may be offering the ability to buy access to certain kind of viewers, regardless of what they're watching. And mm -hmm. so one of the models I can I can imagine being more viable is something like a pre-roll ad. Mm -hmm. um, and so you've got attention and it doesn't really matter what the show is yeah. um, so much as that people are watching. And that probably wouldn't shift things as much as if all of a sudden the game became trying to generate the most viewers around every single title um, that is a very different development strategy um, admittedly that is the one we kind of see coming from um, what i call the owned ip streamers mm -hmm. so services such as disney plus hbo max uh, paramount plus uh, those that are based on really the libraries of holdings of hollywood studios I don't think we've seen a clear strategy that's differentiated for the particularities of the streaming market from them. While I think we have seen evidence from Netflix that they do think about uh, things or they break down the audience in, in ways that are different um, and that they're looking for patterns of viewing and that they're trying to create content um, it, at the intersection maybe of some of those tastes that aren't being uh, developed generally in the mass space. Um, but again, you know, I think we are in a, 
a different moment than when I was writing the book in terms of the broader conversation yeah. around Netflix. Um, I mean, which is kind of peculiar because the conversation changed, but nothing else really did. Let me reframe the question. What you're saying is very interesting and I like it because you're thinking very differently from what I've seen the investment community say. For one, unless I've misread the temperature recently, the investment community seemed happy that Netflix was going down the ad route and they thought it would be good for them. So my question to you is that, do you think advertising will be good for Netflix? And what format do you think that should take for it to be positive for Netflix? Mm. No, I don't think it will be good. I think right now- Oh, a definitive answer. I like that. You're definitely yeah. not an economist. Um, I understand the thinking, right? On the surface, two business models are better than one, or two revenue streams. Yeah. are better than one you know that that seems indeed conventional thinking the problem is if adding the second revenue stream um erodes and compromises your first um and and that's what i see happening netflix is in the marketplace and i think i think there are a few reasons why i'm, I'm not quite in line with uh, some sure. of the conventional hollywood thinking um one of it is that i think the conversation right now is dominated by the way things are working in the us and the unprecedented opportunity of streaming video is about scale yes. it's we have never had anything like a global television service right yes. um and, and nor one paid for by subscribers so the reason the stock price should have probably been high um, is the bet on that opportunity. Yes, the growth um, potential. I think, in, I think instead, I think the reason why the stock, the stock has always been overpriced um, yes. and it's been overpriced for so long, I'd kind of forgotten about it, to be honest. Um, <laughs> it was part of, a, a, you know, that moment in the early 2000s when sort of yes. anything tech or internet-y we, we threw money at. And, and that's, slow. you know, Sure, um, but we didn't know anything really about the dynamics of, of the streaming business then. Yes. And actually we still know stunningly little. Um, all we know now is that the legacy players are going to play in this space too, which we probably could have guessed, you know, in the early 2000s. Yes. So, all the streamers are not actually as interchangeable as I think they are imagined to be. Yeah. Um, if I've just um, done some recent work on analyzing the libraries um, to really understand what Netflix, or to try to understand Netflix's uh, global strategy, and we compared um, 17 different libraries or libraries in 17 different countries, Netflix all. Um, just to sort of see how much similarity, how much difference, where are the libraries coming from? And, and it was, it's really reveals some of the major differences. Um, Netflix's library of the 17 countries, which are all major um, subscribing countries, yeah. uh, only 40% of the content in the Netflix libraries comes from the US. Uh, what Netflix is offering is a much more cosmopolitan video service yeah. um, so almost 80 different countries are represented in most netflix libraries that's very different than what and uh disney plus hbo max paramount plus are offering right 
And that might not show up in the US market in terms of consumer behavior. But when you start looking around the world, and again, the play here is scale, the scale is not in the US. Yes. Um, and so when you look around the world and you have subscribers who are choosing among these services, the, the Disney Plus, HBO Max, Paramount Plus, they're, they're small, much smaller libraries, um, and they're overwhelmingly US-made content. Right, yes. um, made for the world, mind you, but you know that's what you're getting. Those services to the internet to the subscriber outside the U.S. are much more interchangeable, whereas Netflix is a much broader library um, in in terms of the number of titles. Uh, so it has much deeper children's offerings, doco offerings, as well as the scripted fiction, um, and it's doing that work of making it possible to access video content that's been produced around the world. Now, is everybody gonna want that? No. Um, is the catalog big enough that um, you know, people who aren't interested in it can still find plenty sort of conventional US-ish content? Arguably. I mean, at a title level, Netflix has as much US content as the other services. So I think, so to come back to your question, sorry, um, you know, if we're looking at the conversation right now, I think it's very much being driven by how these dynamics feel in the United States yes. when it's actually the global market um, for the services that is where, you know, the real opportunity um, lies. That makes sense to me intuitively. I know that Netflix has a deep library of international content. Being a consumer of most of the streaming services, I know it's probably deeper than anyone else. The only one else that seems to have international content of that scale is probably Amazon Prime Video, but it's nowhere near yeah. as deep as Netflix. So what you're saying here is that a lot of Netflix's strategy and thinking is being driven by US investors but Netflix's play seems to be growth in international markets through this deep library of international content. Is that a good way of paraphrasing it? I think that's what the advantage in the marketplace Netflix currently has is that that relationship globally is far more advanced than the other, the other similar streaming services. And Netflix does seem to have reached um, some level of saturation in the US, Canada, UK, Australia, and so on. So any growth they would oh, want absolutely. would have to come internationally. So coming back to advertising, does advertising help them with an international mm -hmm. play or do you feel it pulls them away from it? Unless they've been working on, you know, developing a global advertising product for you know, a few years, which yes. no one knows about. Um, so it's a very quiet company, so it's possible. Uh, the challenge to adding ads to that is that, you know, the particularities of selling advertising are a bit different every yeah. single country, right? So again, the advantage, the unprecedented opportunity was being a bound, national boundaryless direct to consumer service. Um, and they've certainly, you know, there've been all kinds of challenges in, in just doing that and kind of figuring out payments in countries that don't have strong credit card yes. practices and so on and so forth. Like it's not a small amount of work just to do that. Um, I think anyone who's advocating for introducing advertising to the mix is not necessarily recognizing the considerable cost that comes with that uh, in terms of building that ad infrastructure. So, you know, whether those 
costs on top of potentially diluting your um, market differentiation. These are all significant you know, ways in which a, a, an addition to advertising of advertising um, is, is not a, a clear strategy win. You've actually said something very insightful. I want to just zoom in on that for the audience. When the market has been talking about Netflix going to advertising because Netflix mentioned it, one of the things I've not seen written about anywhere is has Netflix been working on this for the last three or four years? Or did they just say this and they've started working on it? Because as you say, it's one thing to start rushing to put together an ad system that's untested versus having put in place the entire infrastructure over the last four years and tested it. Because it can be a very, very bad experience if you just throw something at the last minute. There's that. And I think the other factor that I don't know if it's been fully considered is that there there's not new advertising money sitting out there. Yes. Uh, we've saw, we saw this in the last decade with you know what was print. You know, so so yes, sort of quote unquote digital advertising. Let's call it search and social because that's mostly what it is. Um, search and social have become a major place that uh, ad money is spent. All of that money, or most all of that money, came from somewhere else. It came from direct to home, uh, things like the yellow page phone books we used to have, um, and mostly it came from what was the print industry. The creation of ads on Netflix, that money is not going to be new money to the market. So they have to uh, that, money, money that money is going to probably come out of television. Um, and so that's less of a problem for Netflix. Um, that's much more of a problem for the companies, the legacy companies that, yes, are now in streaming, uh, but also have are, are reliant on revenue that's coming in from broadcast and from cable. Um, so I think, again, like this, it, it, in many ways, this feels like a repeat. And we, we didn't learn the lesson, right, of those heady days around, let's yes. say, 2005, when it's just like, oh, advertisers will pay for it. Yeah. Uh, it will be wonderful. No, uh, just no. Uh, if we look around the globe and the 20-year the, the horizons of ad spending, um, although where those ad dollars go has changed, you know, relatively the, the amount of money that's being spent on advertising hasn't. Um, and so the idea that, uh, again, Netflix is fine because Netflix doesn't have a legacy ad business um, that's yes. going to be losing here. But um, this has some big implications, I think, for the broadcasting cable sector. Um, one of the things I, I've kind of argued, again, in, in terms of recognizing that ad-supported uh, businesses are not in the same market as subscriber-funded yes. businesses, even if they're both offering video, it's exactly that. You know, a key definition of a market is, you know, what is the thing that's being traded? Um, and so consumers decide how many streaming services to have based on their leisure dollars, um, you know, and, and whether that's a, a, a spend that, that fits their lifestyle and things like that. You know, what's going on in that space is quite separate from the demand for advertisers dollars, which is also finite. Um, and so it, it, it ha what has happened over the last uh, 10, 15 years in terms of the erosion of broadcasters business, um, it's been tied to 
and audience fragmentation. Uh, it's been tied to advertisers having other places to put their money. Um, it, it's not as economically tied to streamers as is commonly imagined. Yes, that's a very good way of thinking about it. It's about trying to understand what is the scope of the market they're entering, whether it's growing, whether it's declining and so on. But I remember having a, a discussion with Cheryl Sandberg once. And she explained to me the effort that went into building the infrastructure that Facebook put in place for their ad business, which is a different ad business, obviously, yeah. but it's still an infrastructure for an ad business. And the challenges with being able to reach out to advertisers, building relationships with them, it was bringing in an entirely new type yeah. of workforce into Facebook that they've never had before. So, you know, just thinking about that, I can imagine the effort that Netflix would have to put in place which would be costly, and they're not making that much money before they could even could figure out if this made money. Yeah. It seems like a really big bet that's driven purely by the drop in number of subscribers. It seems as if it's meant to placate the investment community versus some well thought out plan. Now, I'm not an expert on Netflix, but that's just the way I view it. I would describe it exactly the same way. Um, and I think there are if the concern is growth, I think there are other ways to think about um, pursuing that growth um, that aren't potentially as damaging to the underlying business. What would you think would be the best way, knowing what you know about Netflix? Uh, you know, I think we've talked a lot about Netflix and I've mentioned sort of the studio streaming services yes. and, and you mentioned Amazon and I think I think we also we have <laughs> Amazon and Apple are somewhat the 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 elephants in the around the yeah. conversation right we haven't really talked about them they they are also often you know sort of lumped into the single sector um, and they they are also providing video um, but we do also have to acknowledge that they're providing video for for different reasons right they're using the video to support their underlying business which is you know mostly tech devices in the case of, of apple um, and and retail in the case of amazon the support through um, you know offering video to along with uh, free shipping. Yes. Those are also companies that, you know, could entirely remake this field. Uh, you know, it, it, we talk so much about um, television shows and, and the companies like Netflix that make them, but it's important to remember that the making of content is always has always been a much smaller business than yes, that, that of the companies that distribute it, right? So historically, that's been cable or satellite providers or broadcasters. Um, now, you know, internet service providers, much bigger businesses. Um, and the extent to which Apple and Amazon, it, if they are quietly putting infrastructure pieces in place um, that will likely have really significant implications for these companies that are just making and distributing television shows and movies, um, right? So whether that's the television sets that they're building in the case of Amazon, Apple already has plenty of devices, yes. um, the, the marketplace both services have, right? If you want to, if you actually wanted to rent or buy any of these titles, um, you might go to the uh, iTunes store or to Amazon and just buy it directly. Um, they also are places where you can buy the different apps of 
of these services, right? Those pieces um, are ultimately going to be quite valuable in the coming stage of competition. And so even though let's say it looks right now that the video business isn't the central concern of either mm. of those companies, uh, I think the other thing to keep in mind is that at any point they could choose to change that dynamic. And, and so I, I think I read perhaps some of the investor skepticism as a recognition of, of that as well. That when we look at companies with that much money to spend in this, this marketplace, um, the, the future or the scale of um, something like Netflix, uh, it, it's just not in the same league and it's never going to be. Yes. Um, and I think the, mis the mistake was, I, I feel like it's not like Netflix ever said that they were going to be like Google, Facebook, yeah. Amazon, Apple, right? Like it's- But do we, like do we, do we our... give it that kind of aura by the press? Exactly. They, you know, they get, they got thrown and, into and they also the, took you know, it fang well. or- Yes. Oh, well, yes. I mean, I guess, you know, how can you not? <laughs> if, yeah, if it's so flattering. <laughs> If, the, if you're going to drive the stock price up, okay. Um, but I think the reality is, is the frame for the ultimate scale of a company like Netflix was was never going to be like some of those others. Yes. Um, I mean, there's that doesn't mean it's a bad business. Yes. Um, right? Expectations not, need to be reset. Yes. It's not open. And again, another reason, another issue with ads. I think there will eventually be some sort of reckoning over ad tech fraud um, and you know the extent to which money has been spent in advertising and it is unclear whether um, it is delivering what was intended or that it's effective right. Um, so I think that moment is coming, which will have implications for companies in, in the ad space, the other thing is the question of regulation um and i think the the reasons that companies like facebook and amazon and google are in regulator sites um, are very much connected to the consequences the you know the competitive yeah. consequences of being ad-based right if your product is all about you know trying to be in front of a consumer longer um, that leads you, in, let's say, in the case of, of Facebook, perhaps to prioritize controversial content yes. or you know, all of that stuff. Um, and you know, whether or not any regulation ultimately comes down because of that, I think an advantage that the pure subscriber space has is that it has rightfully not been implicated in that. Um, you know, part of the beauty of the subscriber funded services is, is, is the relative purity of their business model yes. compared to many other media business models, right? We provide content. If you like it, you pay for it, right? Um, that's, that's a pretty clear model. And, and no selling of data and any of those things. No selling of data and no selling of attention. Yes. And so, you know, the motivation on the part of those services is honestly making the viewer happy um, in a way that you know making the viewer happy is secondary uh, when it's actually the advertisers that are are funding your business
Yes. One thing you've said that I haven't seen many other people speak about, although it seems obvious in hindsight, as most smart ideas are, but if you look at what happened with um, YouTube and Google, with the rise of YouTube, YouTube made much more money because it had the distribution muscle versus the people that were actually producing the content in videos and so on. And you, then you, you sort of segued into saying something similar whereby Amazon and Apple have that ability to have the distribution muscle. So it's likely they would, if you break down the value chain for where value is created in this entire pie, it's likely they would again scoop up most of that and the content producers would always be the smaller side of it, which then begs the question, Netflix has spent a lot of time trying to integrate everything from content production to distribution and so on. Is it a case for it to specialize? Oh, in either distribution or production? Well, I think in, in these industries, we've seen vertical integration of production and distribution for some time. Yeah. Um, and I actually do think that that's probably an efficient system. I mean, so there's a lot of comparisons that, in that comment that are, you know, sort of needs to, need to be teased out. Right. YouTube doesn't pay for any of its content. That's crucial, right? Like that's True. what puts it in another sector. It'd be great, right? If, if you could attract tons of attention and not have to pay for the content. Yes. Um, right. Um, but you are also very right to note that there are significant and looming issues around um, the compensation for the producers and creatives of content for streaming services. Um, and and these are these are they just can't be described any other way. They just are thorny issues. Yes. Um, in that the business of television and movies, if you were a producer, um, for for decades has been about creating content and continuing to make money from it as it gets sold and resold yes. in market after market. The notion of streaming. Um, the idea of having a catalog available and you can watch things whenever works completely contrary to a windowing model. Um, and also making the thing that sold a bundle of content, right? Or what, what is the streaming service, but it's, you, you buy access to the bundle of content. Yes. That also makes it extremely difficult um, to in any meaningful way ascribe value to a particular title, right? Yes. Like, like, so let's just work with the Squid Game for a while. Like we know tons of people watch that, but what is the value? What is the calculation, right? And like, how, how much would you pay know? for that as a separate program? If you exactly, um, and without those kind of metrics, it makes it really difficult to pay the people who create the content um, any in a manner similar to the way in which they have been compensated in the past. Yes. Um, and so, you know, so that's one of the reasons why um, the deals that these services uh, make and, and increase, you know, Disney has has shifted to the same kind of model. Um, it's called cost plus. Mm -hmm. um, basically, you know, there there is no, the production company isn't taking on deficit. Um, which was the norm in the past. In the past, you, you produced, you know, a show for NBC's Thursday night, um, but you were not making, they were not paying you what it was really costing to make the content. Because they could the production company knew they'd sell and resell, yeah. right? Yeah. 
So what we have now is a system with much less risk, right? So in but, that but old system- Much less risk to whom? Risk to the producers. Risk to the producers. So in that old system, well, yeah, and in that old system, you know, we forget, I think, we focus on the friends, the law and order, you know, those cases yeah. where just incomprehensible amounts of money have been made. Um, and we forget the fact that every season, more than 80% of the shows that were made didn't go on to a second season, yeah. and that those studios wrote down those losses. Um, and so it's not when you produce for these services, you, you, you aren't taking on that risk, right? You, you are made whole um, when you make, make the, the production. The consequence of taking the risk out is that the upside is also lower. Um, so yes. you are not going to there. The, the saying that I've, I've heard around the industry a few times is it's it's a business. It's a baseball analogy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a business of singles and doubles, not home runs. Um, and that has consequences um, on down the line because we still have a, let's say, a, a Hollywood infrastructure that was built for an era of home runs yes. um, in terms of the layers and layers of management and agents and managers and um, all sorts of people who could have a livelihood when we had, you know, home runs. Um, and, you know, the business just looks really different. And I don't know that we've figured out, uh, we certainly haven't come up with um, compensation schemes that all sides acknowledge are um, conceived of as fair. Um, I, and I think that's a very, it's a very strong discourse that um, producers feel like they're, the, the new conditions are unfair. Um, and I think part of that is the, the deals that get talked about are the really big ones. Yes, um, and I think true. it's easy to feel like um, everybody else is getting the good deal and you're not. Um, and we just don't have clear standards now, and I think another thing, it's interesting the way that these services combine both television and, and movies when historically television and movies have had kind of these different underlying yes. norms. So in television, let's say again, in the 1990s, if you were producing you know, pretty much every hour long drama on a broadcast network had roughly the same budget. You know, yes. like if you had a bunch of star power over time, you know, those budgets would creep up, but basically everything was the same. In film, we've always had variation, right? You had blockbusters, but you also had small indies. Yeah. Um, so in the streaming world, you do have variation, right? So obviously the scale of audience that Netflix expects to attract with something like The Crown um, is very different than when they make a bet on a, a, a young new talent, yes. um, for example, like early on a season, sorry, and sorry show, right? Like, you know, I think I remember seeing the budget on that was, you know, really low relative to some of the other things. And I think that's a hard thing for creators um, to, to sort of the budget, I think kind of can feel like a, a ranking, right? Of, of yeah. how much of a priority this title is when in fact, um, and, and we don't know, <laughs> this is the hard part, right? Because the only thing we know is sort of the top 10, um, which tends to feed our obsession with what is most watched. Um, I think it's actually, and when I think about the titles that keep me subscribing to services, it's rarely the buzzy most yeah, watched things. I would agree with that. Um, 
And so I think, I think that's a piece of the puzzle that the services see in their data, um, but that the general conversation about the services hasn't appreciated. So looking back at these uh, big numbers being bandied around everywhere you go, whether it's London, whether it's Atlanta, whether it's Toronto, Vancouver, LA, and so on, the big production centers in the world, it seems like there's a lot of money being thrown around. A lot of people are working. Everyone's booked out. Trailers are always yep. backed out and everyone's working. But the argument you're making, it, it's a good argument, is that while a lot of money is being spent, it's being spent on so much content that if you average it out, less than before is being spent per a production? Oh, no, because budgets have gone up so much. Um, I mean, beginning in the 2000s, you know, sort of what's a normal budget? Maybe let me rephrase the question. Yeah. So before you said that creative story was unfair, why do they think it's unfair if there's even more money being thrown at them? I don't know that there's even more money being thrown, um, right? So the norm was, let's say in the US, um, a 22 episode per year mm -hmm. series. And there were, you know, union minimums. It was obvious what yes. everyone was making, you know, that sort of thing. Now it's, you know, it's 10 episodes, um, you know, 10 episode seasons. And most of the services are only doing two or three se uh, seasons. And, yeah. and I'm not, I, I don't think we should uniformly be critical of that. Yes. Um, again, the fact that we have a new distribution technology um, doesn't mean that we have new money to be putting into content or, you know, that the marketplace has has an expansive money um, yes. available to create the content. So so there's a trade off. So on one hand, I think there are, are a lot of titles that never would have been made that are being made right now. Um, the downside is that we do not have shows that are making 100, 200 episodes anymore. Um, you know, that, that's, I think, the trade-off. And the implications of that, I think, are probably good for the audience. I think they make being a writer, a producer, um, making that content much more difficult. So in your research, have you been able to deduce if people are happier with the content now than what they were getting before? <laughs> It certainly doesn't seem like it when you're on Twitter and everybody's complaining Nobody about something. Nobody seems happy anymore. Everyone's complaining about everything. Yeah, you know, I, that's, I was just thinking about that. And, and, and I think the question that has to be posed to people is, can you think back to the 1990s? And, you know, and, and, and that's kind of the comparison. All my favorite shows are from the 1990s, Amanda. Well, it, it was I think a about it era. a lot. <laughs> right. But also think about how you had to watch. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, hand wringing about how many streaming services will you pay? And I remember in the 1990s when I spent a lot of time in the blockbuster aisles um, and, you know, every every rental, you know, if 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 you rented um, a movie every week, that's 20 bucks right there um, in, in, in 1990 dollars, um, yes. you know, so I think that's another question that's sort of different in different countries right because the us the us cable industry was not functioning on a the marketplace was not doing what uh, a competitive marketplace is meant yes. to do in us cable in the past so you know it would be i'd love to see the economic data about sort of shifts in whether we're spending more um and and have people reflect on that and reflect on, you know, 
the ease with which you know these services can provide content um you know i i certainly i haven't seen any data suggesting people are going back to the cable bundle um <laughs> so uh i i i think you know we are predisposed to want something to work more the way we want it or we want yes more of the shows that we particularly like um, without regard for the fact that you know our neighbors watching something else and they want more of the thing that they really like you know but i think i think there is a a bigger context that often gets forgotten in the um concern about how many streaming services will we pay for um or um do is it really a loss um, if we don't have um, shows that go on for 100 episodes. Yes. So in your work, are you working with these streaming companies? Are you advising them? Uh, not much. <laughs> but, uh, but to be honest, you're one of the most insightful people I've spoken to in a very long time. You have a very deep understanding of the underlying economics of the sector. I've spoken to people from all sectors. So my question is, why are you not speaking to Netflix and the streaming companies? Uh, I would be happy to. I take calls. <laughs> you want us to broke an introduction. <laughs> uh, you know, I think, I, I, I don't know. The case Netflix project, you know, I, I note early on that a lot of my other research is strongly reliant on interviews and, yes. you know, they don't talk. Um, I will say that I have listened to every podcast and public utterance that uh, Ted Sarandos, I think, has made. Yes. Um, and so you find little bits in yeah. other places, but you know, the, again, part of this is the challenge of something new, right? So yeah. we know how US television works because it's, it figured itself out over the course of 80 years or, or not yes. 80 years, uh, you know, 50 years. I mean, certainly in the 1950s, it probably felt a lot like streaming does right now, um, where it's just yeah. really opaque. Um, and so I think in time, um, you know, the norms will, will seem more obvious. Um, you know, I try to write for not just an academic audience um, because, yes. you know, to your point, I do think these points are broadly relevant. You know, maybe in an era when market valuation you know, it was easy to come by. Um, there was less of a need to focus on on strategy and fundamentals and understanding how your business is really different than these other things. Uh, maybe that was less needed, and and maybe as things start to feel tighter, um, there will be more of a move to to looking to um, advice um, in this area. We'll see. <laughs> well, I used to be a senior partner in corporate strategy and corporate finance, one of the biggest consulting firms. And I can tell you right now that the way you think about things is definitely different from other people. And you have an ability to see things other people are not seeing. And you also have a way to explain it and back it up, which is very rare. It's a very rare combination, actually. So I'm hoping you'll get on a plane to LA, meet all these executives and share some of your ideas, because you definitely are thinking about this in a very different way. And I like what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense to me. You also are very clear where you don't have the answers. And, and I think that's part of the journey of helping these executives think things through where the answers 
have not been sorted out yet because we're still in the early stages of streaming. So I really enjoyed speaking to you. It's one of the best conversations I've had. I want to thank you for all the work you're doing and for being on the show. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. And, and thank you for all of those words. It's it when you spend a lot of time thinking in a way that's contradictory to what it seems like everyone is saying, yes. you know, I, I do spend a fair bit of time wondering if I'm just crazy. Um, but, you know, I think it's it's to some degree the scholarly mind, right? You know, how can I find evidence? You know, what can I back this up with? What is this like? I think that's another yes. big piece is is looking for those historical connections. Very little of what's happening now is new. Um, but um, if we look back, we we can start to see the patterns. So uh, thank you very much for uh, taking the time. And I had a great time talking with you as well. So thank you. I'll leave you with this one thought because we were talking about having uh, counterintuitive and contradictory ideas. The definition of an insight is a counterintuitive idea that turns out to be true. Mm. So as you have all these counterintuitive ideas, and as they turn out to be true, just remember you're generating insights. So I hope you do more work in the sector. I hope you write more as well, because I'm always looking forward to following your work. And I hope we'll bring you on the show again in the future. Uh, I hope to be back. Thank you. Take care, Amanda. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.